The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks your climate-focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, embracing all that is fall. I wore a sweater on the day of recording. I've pulled out my lightweight jackets. I have the windows open. I am in autumn heaven. I'm sure you can hear it in my voice. Today's guest is a longtime energy policy expert. Currently a senior advisor for Hogan Levels, Neil Chatterjee is a former commissioner and chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, otherwise known in these parts as FERC, and has deep ties in Washington and across the industry with extensive experience across the energy landscape, both domestically and internationally. He is respected for his ability to strike compromises and work on a wide variety, work with a wide variety of stakeholders. In his time on the Hill and at FERC, Neil built a reputation as a bipartisan operator who builds alliances and cuts through red tape with an eye on always promoting innovation. His significant knowledge and experience is derived from operating at the highest levels of government. On today's episode, Neil is going to share his insights with us on the greatest energy challenges facing the U.S. Listeners, that conversation is coming up next. Welcome back, listeners. So excited to have one of your favorite guests going by a number of downloads back on the show, Neil Chatterjee. Neil, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. I can't believe it's been so long. I know you were our second. I I only remember this because I have a weird memory for useless things, <laughs> useless knowledge. So you are our second to the last guest of our first season. So we talked in November of 2020. Here it is. Date of recording is late September 2023. Three years have gone by. Well, uh, I'm glad to be back and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So I think at the time, if I recall correctly, some of the, the big energy issues that we were talking about and listeners um, remember that you were past chairman of FERC, um, long, long, long time energy policy expert coming from the Senate where you spent many, many years. Um, at the time, I remember you talking a lot about cybersecurity and energy and um, the potential for some of our, our utilities to be attacked by uh, agents who don't have our best interests at heart. And we talked about permitting. So <laughs> this is a trick question. Have we done better on any of those things in the last three years? Three years later. And, uh, you know, what do you know? We're, we're still facing a lot of the same challenges. Um, I think I mentioned back then one of the new you know, realities uh, of the 21st century is that while innovation has better enabled us to become much more efficient um, and effective in our uh, system of generating, distributing, and um, consuming electricity, with that innovation comes the downside risk of increased vulnerabilities. And I actually think the, the vulnerabilities on the cyber and physical security side have only become more enhanced. Now, we are doing an excellent job staying ahead of these evolving threats. But we saw a curious thing emerge in the last year uh, in which 
uh, people around the country were shooting up substations. And, you know, some of it might have been, you know, drunks. Some of it might have been, you know, kids screwing around. And some of them um, were, were really nefarious actors who understood that taking out power could really have a disruptive impact on society. And that was their objective. And so uh, this is just one of those challenges that it's difficult to balance. Um, you know, there are over 54,000 substations in the U.S. Uh, the most critical substations, the ones that are uh, most necessary to maintain the reliability of the grid, um, you know, they have uh, enhanced standards that they have to comply with. But it's not possible to apply those standards or it's not practical uh, to all of these substations. Uh, and so some of them are acutely vulnerable and it's just something that we have to deal with. But, you know, utilities, state commissions, others are, are doing good work, you know, finding ways to to build walls or install cameras or, um, you know, put uh, uh, sandbags over transformers to protect them from, you know, the propulsion of a bullet. Um, but uh, it, it's certainly a concern. And, you know, particularly now with still having supply chain issues coming out of the pandemic, possible shortage in the availability of component parts for transformers. It's something that we have to continue to to strive to to be good at. And then permitting. Gosh, uh, I, I could go on for for two hours on permitting. I know your listeners don't want that. So I'll simply say we got to get it done. It's too hard to build things in this country. It really is. And we need to build more things for those who support the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, Heather Reams was on the show a few weeks ago um, from CRESS, from Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. And one thing that she mentioned was that the IRA bill was full of Republican priorities. They just didn't really like the political process under which it was um, passed through the House and the Senate. But if you're just looking at the substance of the bill itself, lots of renewable clean energy, you know, slated to come onto the grid. But how do we do it without solving this issue where we need to build more transmission, we need to fix our permitting. Yeah, look, there's a widely cited study that said that if we don't triple the pace at which we build transmission in this, this country, almost 80% of the projected emissions reductions that were expected to emanate from the IRA wouldn't be realized. And um, it's hard to build transmission in this country. Look, I was screaming this from the rooftops during my waning days at FERC that you could not tie up the pipeline approval process on the Natural Gas Act side in bureaucratic red tape and legal obstacles and not expect those same challenges to emerge when it comes to building transmission on the Federal Power Act side. And the, the irony is that the historical opponents of building energy infrastructure because it was fossil infrastructure are now the proponents of building transmission lines to get clean energy onto the grid. And what they're recognizing now is the very same playbook that they used to frustrate pipeline development <laughs> is now being used against them to transmission build out. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, what I've come to recognize is nimbyism, not in my backyardism. It's not political. It's not ideological. Americans don't want infrastructure coming through their yards, whether it's a pipeline to deliver natural gas or a transmission line to deliver clean energy. Or offshore wind development. I was on the Jersey Shore this summer and for a week, and I saw these signs everywhere not off our shores. And even my friends who I was staying with, I was like, okay, what is this about? Well, you know, they're going to build these um, 
these wind turbines and they're just going to obstruct our view. I'm like, you know, they're going to be so far out. It would take you over an hour to get to them by boat. Like they're going to be, if you can even see them, like little minuscule things in the way in the distance. And would you rather have that or more Superstorm Sandies? So you pick, but you're right. NIMBYism, it, it crosses ideological lines and is really more about what you what things not changing, I guess, is what I will say. Things not changing. Um, I was going to go back to a second for your what you were talking about um, shooting up substations. And I know you were being a little bit tongue in cheek with the sometimes it's kids, you know, and, and I had to laugh a little bit because I definitely went to high school with a few people that would have thought that was a fun thing to do. Uh, let's go shoot up that substations. We have nothing else to do in rural Maine. But yeah, these are big issues, Neil. And I'm so I'm curious, um, especially on the permitting side, because it's something we hear so much about in the energy world. How do we get through this? How how do we get through the red tape of partisanship so that we can cut the red tape of bureaucracy? You know, it's just it's it's a challenge, right? Um, I, I could make the case that there's a, a, a real easy compromise to be had here. You know, strike a deal in which, yes, it would better facilitate the building of natural gas infrastructure in the short term, but would enable us to build the transmission to get clean energy onto the grid in the long term. And, you know, that should make sense for both parties to come together and, and cut that deal. But, you know, the, the political fault lines have just become so hardened. Um, and it's just like I said, it's, it's hard to, to these are hard questions to answer. It's not, I don't want to make your listeners think this is only about partisan politics. Um, you know, issues like siting and cost allocation are really thorny. The easiest way to build transmission in this country would be to use existing right-of-ways. Well, then you're subjecting the same communities that saw the last round of infrastructure build out to another round. Now, as an academic case, I could say, go into these communities and say, yes, we're sorry. We're going to come and build through your backyards again. But in this instance, these transmission lines are going to bring clean energy onto the grid, which will enable us to shut down more polluting resources, which will clean up your air and your water and long-term will be beneficial to your community. As an academic exercise, you could maybe sell that. As a real-world practical one, it's hard. The harder challenge to me is uh, is cost allocation. So you cited the example of offshore wind. So say you have a ton of offshore wind in state A and you have a ton of demand for clean energy in state C. What happens to state B in the middle? Um, as an academic case, I could argue that even though state B doesn't want these transmission lines coming through their backyards, even though they're not benefiting from the generation nor the consumption of the power – they would benefit in the form of alleviated transmission congestion, which is one of the big problems we're dealing with today. And therefore, there's some benefit accrued to their ratepayers, and their ratepayers should bear some of the cost of that transmission line. Again, as an academic exercise, you could maybe credibly argue that as a real life one, going to ratepayers in state B and saying, you're going to have a transmission line come through your yard that you don't want. You're not benefiting from the generation of the power nor the consumption, but we're going to make you pay for it. Really, really difficult sell. So there's some genuine, genuine hurdles here. And so uh, politics obviously plays a role, but I don't want to, you know, underplay the real logistical challenges that exist here beyond politics. 
I've been at this a long time. You mentioned prior to FERC, I worked in the Senate for a long time. I remember when the late Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid of Nevada first introduced a transmission reform bill in like 2008. And for the last 15 years, I've watched Congress punt to FERC and FERC punt back to Congress on these really, really thorny issues because they're hard. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Neil, these are these are really big challenges. So, you know, is there a solution that could be had by kind of stepping away from the politics and, you know, is there a working group or a think tank or a commission or something? What can we do so that we can have kind of an impartial, I don't know, group of of experts come together with the solutions and then maybe maybe there needs to be some way to give uh, the, those state B folks, those ratepayers who might not benefit from what's happening in states A and C, giving them some relief so that they're not held responsible for what's going on around them. I mean, it just feels like this is a gigantic mess, but there has to be a way out of it if we want to move forward. I actually have been kicking around the idea kind of along the lines of what you just referenced um, of a BRAC for transmission. For your listeners who may not be familiar with what BRAC is, and they probably shouldn't be, uh, in the uh, early 2000s, the U.S. government was faced with a situation where we needed to close a number of military bases around the country. And these are very, very controversial decisions that anger everyone in the communities in which bases need to be closed. And so it was too difficult for Congress to try and pick and choose the, the the bases that would stay open and the bases that would close. So they created something called the BRAC, the Base Realignment and, and, and Closing Commission. And uh, they appointed a bunch of people, experts, to serve on this commission, and they made all the difficult decisions about what bases to close, and Congress then voted it up or down. And everyone hated everybody that served on the BRAC, particularly, obviously, in those communities in which the bases were closed. But 20 years later, it actually worked, or maybe it's been 15 years, it actually worked, and nobody remembers who the people were who were on the BRAC. And so I think like a BRAC for infrastructure could be necessary. Get a group together, experts from across the country who this is what they do for a living, let them make the difficult decisions about where to put transmission lines and pipelines and how to spread the cost and have Congress vote it up or down. I actually think that could work um, as opposed to, you know, kind of the the little ticky tack back and forth that we're seeing now. The one caveat I'll note. So the first round of BRAC closings was successful. They tried a second round and and couldn't get it passed because it was too, too contentious. So uh, even that solution, creating this sort of super committee to try and get infrastructure built, uh, I, I suspect would still be fraught uh, politically. Yeah. And you kind of maybe you get that one bite at the apple. It couldn't be a phased approach because by the time the second one is coming around, people are like, wait a second. We already went through this once. But no, I remember Brett. Eat the whole apple in one bite. Yeah. (laughs) So what else is on your radar, Neil? We've talked about planning and and transmission issues and um, um, security of our utilities. Is there anything else you see kind of coming ahead? We're end of 2023 congressional session anyway, 2024, always tough in a presidential year. But anything else you see kind of coming down that um, listeners who care about clean energy, climate change should be um, have their eyes on watching out for? 
You know, I continue to watch the situation in Europe and the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, you know, in many ways, uh, the war in Ukraine is an energy war. Um, Europe writ large and Germany in particular made a series of energy policy decisions over the years that made them uniquely vulnerable to Vladimir Putin. Uh, you know, Germany uh, shut down a bunch of coal in order to meet their decarbonization goals. In the aftermath of the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan, they moved away from nuclear power and they found themselves totally dependent on Russian natural gas. And I think Vladimir Putin, who gets his economic strength from the sale of oil, understands that his political dominance over Europe, over Western Europe, comes from his controlling the gas taps. And I think he was banking on the fact that European support for Ukraine would wane over time because they'd be so desperate for that Russian gas. And here, um, the United States can play an incredible role um, as a net exporter of LNG. And what's frustrating is we can't get on the same page here domestically on what the U.S. government's policy is on natural gas and on exports. And it's irritating to me because when I look at this, I see, okay, positive economic benefits in terms of job creation here at home, positive geopolitical benefits of giving our allies an alternative to Russian gas. But there's also legitimate environmental benefits, clean U.S. LNG, displacing dirty Russian natural gas, displacing more uh, uh, carbon intense sources of fuel around the world actually lowers global emissions. And so I think if we could have a rational conversation here domestically in the U.S., we'd see great opportunities there. And I think that's exciting. Uh, the other issue I'm paying very, very close attention to is the reliability of the grid. This was my foremost responsibility, I felt, um, when I was at FERC, uh, FERC's responsibility for the oversight of the reliability of the grid. Uh, we are seeing the grid be increasingly be tested in different regions of the country by extreme weather events. And this is a real conundrum because the reality is in order to combat climate change and mitigate these extreme weather events, uh, we need to deploy more weather-dependent resources. But those weather-dependent resources tend to be vulnerable in these extreme weather events. And so we just need to have a rational conversation around the reliability of the grid and looking at the market conditions and market designs and how they're working and ensuring that reliability. And I think right now I'm frustrated because both parties ha have taken, in my view, uh, a short-sighted approach to reliability. On the political left, you have folks saying, hey, the most important thing we need to do is meet our decarbonization goals. We'll worry about reliability later. And I just think that's an irresponsible approach. But on the political right, you've got people who are weaponizing reliability to slow down or kill the energy transition. And I, and I don't uh, support that approach either. I think we need to have a sober-minded conversation about reliability in the face of the need to transition uh, our, our energy mix. How do we continue to undergo the energy transition without sacrificing resource adequacy? Uh, that's a big focus of mine um, and will be for the foreseeable future. You know, after that Texas storm a few years ago, that winter storm that knocked out their grid for, you know, several days, maybe even week or, or more, we did have a Texas energy expert on the show talking about that challenge, right? That their their grid was not prepared to deal with both the 
the type of work that they got and then the different demands that were put on their grid at that time. And my son goes to school in Texas. So of course I'm watching too. And as a worried mom, he doesn't have power, he doesn't have water, all those things. And um, it, it is really fascinating. It is something that we need to, to work on. And my fear is that we will wait until we're in such, we have such a dire thing happen that we're forced to all come to the table, right? And that expert that we had on the show said that we were just minutes in Texas from the grid going out for months, which I can't even get my brain around how and why that would happen. But, you know, we never want to reach that level of emergency before we solve the problem. You know, sometimes we can be a little slow here in the U.S. at getting done the things that we need to get done. We do tend to rally when we have... um you know, either a shared enemy or, or a problem that, that really, you know, one of the, the big problems that really need to get addressed. And I just hope that we can get that done before we have, you know, a Texas, but worse situation. Yeah. I mean, look, these situations have already been dire, right? I mean, uh, there, there were loss of life and property damage significantly in Texas, similarly in California and extreme heat events, you know, uh, when the power goes out, and it's really, really hot or really, really cold, people lose their lives. And that should not be taken lightly. Uh, but sadly, I think you're right. It takes uh, a catastrophe to really rally policymakers to make the changes we need to make. And I hope we can get ahead of it. Neil, leave us on a happy note, something good that you see um, coming down the pike. So I'm uh, an optimist and I believe uh, uh, that the Inflation Reduction Act could lead to a scenario in which you have red supply feeding blue demand, and that could start to take some of the politics out of the conversation regarding decarbonization. Um, look, I agree with Heather Reams. There was a lot of policy that Republicans could have supported in the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, it was kind of all carrots, no sticks, um, but it was the vehicle uh, budget reconciliation, which is a tool inherently designed to circumvent the minority party in the Senate and 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 overcome the filibuster, um, that's an inherently partisan device. And so you had a partisan vote. Um, had it been handled differently, I think you could have seen a scenario where you had a lot of Republican support for this. And I think one of the smart things the IRA did was invest in domesticating the supply chain for clean energy. If we can start to, clean, to create those clean energy jobs in rural America, in red states, and red states start to see the economic benefits of the clean energy transition – uh, they'll start to embrace it instead of fear it. Uh, and so I, I'm optimistic that that scenario may play out, that you're going to see some ruby red Republican states become clean energy powerhouses. Uh, and that could, you know, alter the political dynamics around decarbonization that we see today. Neil, thank you for that positive end. And thank you for everything that you do and sharing your um, just a very, very small slice of your expertise with us today. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation and um, hope we can do it again. We will not wait three years next time. Thank you again for having me. And I'll come on uh, anytime that your listeners are bored with me. <laughs> you got it. Bryce, you and I just uh, got back from both being uh, out of town. So why don't you tell the listeners what you did with your weekend? Um, I was at a scouting leadership conference out in the woods with very little to no internet or uh, cell service at, uh, <laughs> access. 
And it was a fantastic weekend just being outside and learning leadership skills uh, that you can take to help mold our young scouts and youth. So a uh, weekend that I won't soon forget. What about you? Amazing. So you did that with Ben? No, it was just adults. Oh, just adults. Oh, my God. It was like camp for adults. That is the dream. <laughs> it was. It was It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work, a lot of conversations, busy wall to wall, not good sleep, you know, but it was, it was just fantastic. So, um, scouting is just, uh, something we've gotten into over the last year. And it's, it's something that I think my son is starting to take too. And I certainly am just all about, you know, the skills and everything they teach, you know, especially when it comes to the outdoors, which relates a good bit to what we do here. Well, I was in Florida with um, some of my oldest and dearest friends. Mm -hmm. One of them lives there. The other, we're all from Maine. Um, One of them flew down from Maine. We met up at the airport in Tampa. And then our friend who lives outside Tampa picked us up. And I would say the highlight of the weekend, aside from the three of us being together, which we (coughs) hadn't been since pre-pan, uh, was that we swam with manatees. Whoa. Like we were just low-key hanging out in the ocean and all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, what is that shadow? And it was a mama and two calves. At least that's what we think. And everybody like came off the beach. I mean, it wasn't that crowded, but like anyone that was on the beach was like coming over because they were just like super friendly and then their little snouts would come out of the water to take a breath. Oh my God, we almost died. It was <sighs> magical. Well, that's certainly a state especially that we know a whole lot about having talked about Florida so many times. Have we missed any like good Florida guests? Listener, if there's a Florida (laughs) guest you know of that we haven't had, send them our way because I feel like we have covered the state. (laughs) No kidding. Well, I'm glad you had a great trip and I'm glad we had a great guest in Neil Chatterjee back on the show and he was once again, outstanding as he was the first time. You know, I always um, try to be mindful when we're recording that we aren't <laughs> having like a two-hour conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Although I guess if we did, we could always break it up into like part one, part two, part three. Part... Anyway, with Neil, I just feel like we could talk forever because I he just brings so much to the table and I love his insights and I feel like we just kind of scratched the surface a little bit with him. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to have him do a webinar or something longer format where we can um, talk to him for a little bit longer. He's fantastic and Mm -hmm. great to have him back. So, yeah, yeah, it was great to have him back. Not to get too far ahead of things, but what do we have uh, on deck next week? Well, next week we have another guest that came to us from our dear friend Ed Maybach at Mm -hmm. uh, George Mason University. This is author Bruce Piasecki. He is an author, so you know how I like uh, like me some writers. And he has a book coming out in January about wealth and climate competitiveness. So we talk about his book and his what he's learned over the years and just a generally nice conversation. So uh, the book is not available yet, but listeners can um, pre-order Bruce Piasecki, P-I-A-S-E-C-K-I, and his book is Wealth and Climate Competitiveness, The New Narrative on Business and Society. So um, very interesting topic and timely to what we do. And also just because it's going to sound self-serving when I say it later, which I will, Mm -hmm. pre-orders make 
all the difference to authors because it is the biggest signal to the publishing house that has is um, taking on that book that there is a readership for it. And so mm-hmm. the the first two weeks of sales, which includes those pre-sales, kind of make or break a book. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I encourage you listeners to go out and pre-order, but also if you want to wait till the conversation, you can listen to the conversation and then pre-order and we'll remind you again next week. So that's what we have on deck price as we cruise through season seven. Mm-hmm. We yeah. are just jamming now. It's almost Thanksgiving practically. Yeah, we're jamming along. We're jamming along with new members every single week, which you can do and sign up. Uh, stand with us at republican.org forward slash join. We tell you every week it takes mere seconds. We don't spam you. But you do get weekend review every single Friday that my esteemed colleague and our award-winning podcast host, Chelsea Henderson, sends out. I have it not is, won any awards. Do not embellish. You've won my award as the best podcast host. So, okay. therefore, you are the best and number one award-winning podcast host here on the Eco Right Speak. So, yes, stand with us. Also, uh, subscribe, hit that download button, especially if you're an Apple Podcast uh, listener. That subscribe button will have a new episode here of the Eco Right Speaks delivered to you every single Tuesday, and you won't miss out. Of course, we would love to have you uh, give us five stars, uh, a four-star review, whatever. We will take any star review, but five would be lovely, and it helps make the podcast easier for others to find. That's right. And, you know, three is my favorite number, but five is right up there, too. Don't give me a three. Give me a five. (laughs) Well, let's get out of here and get ready for next week. But hope everybody enjoys this one or enjoyed as we are at the end of the line. But we will be back again next week in the weeks ahead this fall to do it again here on the EcoRight Speaks. Wherever you are, thanks for downloading, listening, subscribing, investing your time with us, Chels. And we'll see you next week. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.